Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's Nightside with Dan Ray on WBZ, Boston's News Radio. Welcome back. Jordan in for Dan, as mentioned, and we have two hours to go, and it's a shade after 10 o'clock, and uh, I want you to strap on your seatbelts and put your seat back forward because we're about to talk about aviation, and we're going to do so with a great, great uh, man who knows a lot about this kind of stuff and a whole lot about a lot of things, but tonight he's putting on his hat as the executive director of the Aviation Museum of New Hampshire. His name is Jeff Rapsis. Jeffrey, welcome aboard. How are you, sir? Well, good, and uh, thanks for um, uh, the chance to talk a little bit about aviation, which is something that uh, a lot of people have a lot to do with these days, but maybe we don't think about it as much as we do. Uh, and I think what you um, were saying before the, the news is something that we talk a lot about here at the Aviation Museum of New Hampshire. It really is something special that we've learned how to do what the birds have been doing all this time, and uh, it's something that's uh, worth celebrating. Indeed, and uh, I'd like to delve into the museum and what uh, great stuff you offer, and I know you have open houses coming up, and we'll talk about all that. But, uh, yeah, it's it's so interesting. I, I flew recently across uh, the Atlantic, and uh, you, you do sort of take it for granted that you're up there 30,000 feet and you're able to get from one continent to another in six hours and uh, soon we'll be able to get there even faster. But um, let's talk a little bit uh, about just two recent events, and then we'll get into the more interesting lore of aviation. The one that uh, is most prescient is one that just happened the other day, and it's very, it doesn't happen, thank God, very often, but apparently in New York, a plane was taxiing to take off, and another plane was uh, in its path, and it was a very close situation. Um, are you familiar with the uh, situation in New York, Jeff? Yes, uh, just from reading the news uh, reports, um, it just happened recently, and uh, it is a, a rare thing for that to happen because um, it's a the space uh, around an airport on the ground, the taxiways and runways, is very tightly controlled just to, to prevent that kind of a, of an accident happening. Um, so it's very unusual for um, uh, I don't know what happened in this case, but for a plane to wind up where it shouldn't be. Uh, in that situation is something that um, uh, literally one in a million for something like that to happen. Um, and the whole system is built around um, quite a number of um, uh, pr- protocols that yeah. would prevent that from happening. Uh, every taxiway has a name. Um, the runways have numbers. There's lots of procedures that have to be followed to cross an active runway. You have to get clearance from the tower that controls that area and double check it and get uh, clearance for really anything you do. And the, the plane just doesn't leave the gate and drive around wherever it wants. It right. A very well, I, I, and I guess kudos to the uh, crew of, I think it was the Delta uh, plane yeah. that veered away and was able to control. And again, it was no one's intention for this to happen. It was obviously a mistake. And uh, thankfully it was a mistake that didn't result in any, 
damage or injury. The other uh, news story, if you will, is what happened last week when uh, that system that uh, we now know uh, about shut down. It was a system I had never heard of, quite frankly, when uh, the entire air population of America stopped. Um, what what can you tell us about that system in retrospect? Well, um, it's it's called NOTAM, which is an acronym, um, and it was a system created after World War II. It's been around since, I think, 1947, and it was the um, FAA uh, created this nationwide system to alert uh, pilots and other people involved in, in um, aviation about any actual hazards to aviation and to navigation that existed that day in, in real time. So if an airport on the other side of the country had a runway closed for maintenance or for some, uh, you know, unexpected reason, um, you would know that before you would leave because that would be in the NOTAM system. Now, NOTAM, it's actually kind of interesting um, to me that for um, almost the entire time this system has been in, um, in place, that acronym stood for something very specific. It was Notice to Airmen. It's NOTAM, and everyone just called it NOTAM. And it was only in December of 2021, which is not that long ago, that they changed it to what you were reading about in the news reports just recently, notice to air missions. Yes, and to be one politically correct, I guess. Huh? Well, one of the reasons they did it was because uh, it also it involves a lot of um, unmanned aircraft now, or drones. Oh, okay. And so... Uh, Okay. To say notice the airmen seemed to like be leaving all that out. It wasn't complete. But there very much was a sense that um, the the world of aviation still has sort of an implicit gender bias um, in it. And even the language that's sort of built into the system to say notice to airmen. Um, is that the kind of welcoming language that would encourage a young woman to say yes to aviation and make it her <laughs> career? Uh, and it's a real issue. Um, there are people who have been marginalized and not felt welcome in aviation up till even the present day. And you can see that in the, the numbers of people in the field. I think it's 5% of commercial pilots are female. And this well, is see, 2023. That's, that, that's a good explanation. <laughs> at, at first blush, it sounds like, oh, another attempt to uh, codify language. and, and But it, get, it, it does make sense. I mean, airmen, we don't call them uh, congressmen. We call them people in Congress. I mean, I understand that because there are a lot of women. Anyway, uh be that as it may, the system shut down, it's back up. Any word from inside sources as to how they can prevent this from happening again or or what? Well, um, there's a larger issue that um, this is a symptom of, which is uh, we, we like to think we live in a very high-tech world, but um, a lot of the air navigation systems in this country are um, woefully uh, behind the times. Um, and in, in, in the next few years, we may see a real gap between other parts of the world and our nation in how uh, air travel is governed by technology. Um, and uh, that's a result of lack of funding and lack of attention. And the system works well enough when it works. We don't have air crashes all the time. It's very safe. It has to be or people wouldn't fly. Um, and so the argument to improve it and to make it more efficient uh, doesn't really um, get a lot of attention. And so we've slowly over the decades really fallen uh, behind in what could be possible with technology. We could 
uh, have more planes and more flights in the sky. Uh, planes could be closer together if we had better positioning technology to know where things were in real time. Um, and uh, what happened with uh, NOTAM seems to have been, um, as I understand it, it was a contractor that was um, adding data to it and something happened where the database got corrupted and that caused the whole system to basically um, go out. And uh, there's nothing to prevent a plane from taking off and flying around. But if you don't have the NOTAM system, there's a chance that some hazard that's there won't be known. And so the FAA has to emphasize safety right. at all times. No, I'm glad. So I'm glad they did that. Yeah, I mean, they, as inconvenient as it was, um, I just wanted to put in one comment about how many planes are up there at any given time. It's mind-numbing to think about thousands of planes traveling, crisscrossing the skies. Um, well, and, yeah, and they're all crowded. Our, <laughs> yeah, one of the if the planes themselves will be crowded, but the skies they're also. I mean, it's it's it's. Um, uh, it's one of the more interesting exhibits I think we have in our museum is that we have a display that uses one of the commercial applications called FlightAware, and it displays in real time positions of aircraft with transponders so you can see where they are, where they're moving, and you can also call up the information about where they're from, where they're going, what their speed is, what their altitude is, whether they're descending or ascending. Um, and so we we start out showing people the skies over New England, and it looks like there's a lot of planes flying around because Boston's a busy place, but there's other airports too, including ours here in Manchester, New Hampshire. And it's not just commercial flights. There's general aviation. There's other types of aircraft. There's helicopters and rotored aircraft in the sky at any given time, and it seems pretty busy. But then when we zoom out and show people the whole nation with all the planes in the sky at one time, you you always get a big... Oh my gosh! <laughs> because there are, uh, I think it's about 8,000 commercial aircraft. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. In the sky 24-7 at any given time, if you if you look at the whole world, which FlightAware will do, you can zoom out and see the whole planet in real time. And some places are busier than others, depending on the time of day. But it's about 8,000 um, big or little jets carrying people are up in the sky at any given time. So that would suggest that there's, what, uh, 160... How many? It's eight thousand times two hundred. About one point six million people are not on ground; <laughs> they're in the air at any given one time. Something um, like that. I think we may be a decimal point off there, but not. No, uh, it's maybe huge maybe amount. it's one hundred and sixty thousand people. Maybe that's it. Yeah, something like that. But but be that as it may, it's an incredible system, uh, and as you say, it's it's so much safer than every year. It gets more safe. And yet, there was that crash in Nepal just the other day, which reminds us that it's nothing is foolproof. No, and of course uh, they have. Um, it's a whole different system over there. Um, it's a. It's one of the ten poorest nations in terms of per capita income uh, in the world. Right. And yet they rely on tourism for a lot of their income. And 
And people in Nepal use that air system to get from one place to another because if if there's really sometimes no roads to get to where you want to go in Nepal. I've had the good fortune to travel in Nepal several times and go hiking in the Himalayas. Uh, and you, the air system is really essential for that country to function the way it does. And yet they have so few resources and the standards just aren't up to um, what we would think of as adequate. Um, and so it, right now I understand that um, the uh, any Nepali-based airline is not allowed to fly into Europe. The EU has said no because they just don't have the same safety standards uh, in effect. Uh, and as you see, they're, they're, I think the conditions they operate under are extraordinary. Uh, but the rate of accidents, uh, I think, by any standard is, is really unacceptable. Um, right, right. And so it is a concern for people traveling over there. We're talking with Jeff Raps as the executive director of the Aviation Museum of New Hampshire. A great take anytime. And Jeff and I will talk about some of the exhibits and some of the cool things that are going on there. But uh, also we'll invite calls to uh, have you comment on any aspect of, of aviation. If you're a pilot, if you'd like to be one, um, if perhaps you want to talk a little history with us, uh, Jeff has a very good working knowledge of that. Uh, anything else that uh, relates is welcome. 617-254-1030 is the telephone number. 617-254-1030. And we'll continue with more Nightside right after these words. It's Nightside with Dan Ray on WBZ, Boston's news radio. Welcome back. Jordan Rich filling in for Dan tonight and tomorrow night. He'll be back on Wednesday. My guest in this segment is a wonderful friend, Jeff Rapsis, executive director of the Aviation Museum of New Hampshire, located in Manchester. And, Jeff, before we go further into uh, the history of aviation and some of the cool stuff that we can share, let's talk about the museum. There's a lot going on. Uh, tell us about the open houses and, and about some of the exhibits. Oh, there is a lot going on, but I first want to just ask you about um, something that might be of interest. Um, I know that you're, I don't know if you're your mentor, but our good friend Norm Nathan uh, was someone you were very close to for a very long close, time. Very close, yes, very close. Um, and I know Norm was uh, pretty well known for breaking one of the cardinal rules of radio, which is do not mess with the sponsors, uh, because sometimes he would just have a lot of fun reading on-air copy and, and just <laughs> yes. going sort of on his own tangents, right? So right. I just want to ask you, do you wonder what would he have done with the commercial we just heard where they referred to a fairy grandmother? <laughs> <laughs> I think I just thought of Norm. I thought, where's Norm when we need him? <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, I I really think uh, I I really want to explore doing the Navage nose cleaning commercials. I think there's <laughs> there's there's an opening there. Maybe two two nostrils there. There's that uh, two could be explored. I see what you did there. <laughs> Long-time so radio well. fan, Jeff Rapsis. Um, so so getting back to what did I ask you about? Oh, yes, the museum. Let's get well, back to topic. history rather than uh, radio history, yes. Um, our museum, it's a nonprofit museum, and the first thing about it is that it's in the old airline terminal in Manchester. Um, a lot of airports sort of would build a terminal, then bulldoze it and build a new one, and, you know, they go through generations of rebuilding. But in Manchester, the very first airline terminal, which was built in 1937, is still standing uh, intact, and it hasn't been changed very much. Uh, it did get moved from one end of the field to the other because it was too close to a runway when they expanded the runway. Uh, but it's this marvelous, uh, wonderful piece of aviation architecture from the very earliest days of commercial aviation. We're talking the 1930s, 
which is when the Boston and Maine Railroad, remember them? The Boston oh, and yes. Maine Railroad, yeah. they carried a lot of passengers, um, and they saw airplanes as the coming thing. You know, they went a lot faster than the trains. You could go, instead of from Boston to Montreal in 12 hours, which that was pretty fast back then, you could get from Boston to Montreal in two hours in these planes. <laughs> they went 200 miles an hour. <laughs> and so the railroad saw the coming thing, and it was the Boston and Maine Railway uh, that started Boston and Maine Airways. And one of their two routes, one was from Boston to Portland, Maine, but the other was Boston to Montreal. And the first stop out of Boston was Manchester, New Hampshire. And the service was started in 1933, which was the very earliest days when people would pay to get on a plane. Before that, planes were considered rickety contraptions that were uh, dangerous at best. And, and at Jeff, best. And what, what were planes, passenger planes, like for passengers? I mean, we, we all... Everyone complains about cramped seating and all the uh, stowing luggage, and I mean we have it pretty easy compared to that back then. I mean, I don't. I guess were they air conditioned? Were they heated? I mean, um, what? Yeah, you open the window. You have all the air conditioning <laughs> you want on some of the early planes. Um, you know, before pressurization. Um, well, the very first passengers were carried almost as an afterthought because the real business of aviation. The first 20 years after the Wright brothers um, got us going with powered flight, uh, after World War One or so, the real business of aviation was carrying the mail. Yeah, Wiley Post, yeah. right? Right. Well, um, yeah, he had the right name for it, didn't he? Um, he did. Yeah, but, was, uh, I believe he carried yeah. mail for a while. Yeah, it was. It was yeah. like the Pony Express, uh, only a lot faster. Yeah, well, the, it was again the railroads. They carried all the mail, and they thought, well, we could speed that up if we use planes to carry it. And they started these. Um, small, at first, small experiments that quickly grew into a, a, a nationwide system of airmail routes by uh, the early 1920s. Again, this was before people would pay money to get on a plane on a regular basis. You know, you're taking your life in your hands. But the mail didn't care, and they could charge premium rates for it. That's why we got airmail stamps, which were much more expensive mm. uh, than regular postage, and it was a big business. And it was only when a few... Uh, forward-thinking entrepreneurs like Juan Tripp, the guy that started Pan American World Airways, which we all might remember. He's been gone for a long time now, but he was doing um, routes from Florida into Cuba, and in order to make them more profitable, he figured if we could put two wicker chairs among all the mail sacks and sell passengers <laughs> seats, we might actually go get in the black. And that was among the first examples of airlines carrying not mail, but people. Um, and, of course, once planes got a little bit more reliable and safer, the all-metal airplanes like the DC-3 and the Boeing 247, which carried, I think, 12 passengers, all single seats and, you know, six in a row, um, you would um, get people starting to say, uh, yes, this is worth it. It's much faster, and I'm probably not going to die. So, yes, I will, I will get on your plane and pay money to be whisked from one place to another faster than anyone could have imagined prior to that. Right. And no pun intended, it took off from there. And, and our little and... terminal. <laughs> Your <laughs> little terminal. Back, our little terminal was the very first sort of um, sign that this was a business that was here to stay. It was only, the building we were in was only a terminal for about three years when the entire airport in Manchester got requisitioned by Uncle Sam because they saw what was happening in Europe and we were already doing lend-lease with Britain, and we needed facilities to begin shipping 
materiel and personnel by air from the U.S. to the U.K. And so they set up two big bases, one of them here and one in Maine, uh, to stage uh, all of this uh, training and, uh, and, um, and, and mustering. And then off they'd go across the North Atlantic doing um, uh, what's called the North Atlantic Ferry Route. You couldn't fly nonstop then. So they had the Northeast Airlines pilots at that time pioneered the routes through Canada and Greenland and Iceland to get smaller planes across the Atlantic and get them to the U.K. where they'd be needed. And then World War II started, uh, and on December 7th, we were 41, and we came into it, and this whole airport became a very busy military base for the next 25 years. Well, and Jeff, I was, to, was sitting off to one side. <laughs> I, I was going to bring up the fact that aviation, of course, uh, had a two-pronged uh, approach to service. One, of course, was passengers, air, mail, etc., freight. And the other was military. I mean, it was what World War One, when the use of of aerial bombing and and strafing became uh, the fashion. And uh, since then, we, you know, we've got uh, Top Gun and, and everybody else uh, in the air protecting us. So, uh, yes, well, you, there's a there's a I think an interesting story that has a great New Hampshire angle that we talk a lot about here at the museum. Uh, the first military use of aviation actually predated the um the Wright brothers hello it is ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic doing the dishes counting your steps you know all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. And it was during the Civil War. Balloons. Uh, there was a balloonist, a balloonist named Thaddeus Lowe, who was from New Hampshire. Oh. Uh, and he was one of these guys in the 1840s, 1850s, kind of an inventor type guy. He was very interested in what was going on in France, where all the ballooning action was. Uh, and he had a vision of crossing the Atlantic in a balloon. He was never able to do that, but he got well-known enough so that during the Civil War, uh, Abraham Lincoln and his generals decided to put ballooning to military use, uh, and they called Thaddeus Lowe, who was named Chief Aeronaut of the Union Army in 1861. Now, what would you use a balloon for during war? Um, you know, Would you drop bombs from it? I mean, you know, how would you control where it would go? Uh, what they actually did was they would just get a tethered balloon and go up about 500 feet, and they could see where the enemy was. Uh, and that observation. Was advantage. Yes, yeah. it was surveillance. And instead of crawling through all the bushes to spy on the enemy and maybe get captured, you just float it way up and, and then be able to see where they were, and you'd use a new, another new fangled invention, the telegraph, to send down the coordinates to the gun emplacements, and you could fire the cannons, even not knowing where the enemy, even if you couldn't see the enemy, you'd know where to fire the cannon and do pretty well for yourself. 
And um, it, it was an advantage the Union had. The Confederates did not have a balloon corps in the Civil War. And it was thanks to our New Hampshire guy, um, Thaddeus Lowe, that the Union was able to do that. Well, let's do this. Let's take a quick time out. There's so much more fun we're going to have with this topic and interesting uh, developments. Any questions about aviation, the history of it, uh, the future of it, is uh, certainly something we welcome here on Nightside with Jordan in for Dan. The number is 617-254-1030, and we'll continue with Jeff Rapsis, Executive Director of the Aviation Museum of New Hampshire, right after these words. It's Nightside with Dan Ray on WBZ, Boston's News Radio. Welcome back. We're talking about aviation, all aspects of it, with the man who loves the stuff. He's a pilot himself. I want to get his story as well. Jeff Rapsis, Executive Director of the Aviation Museum of New Hampshire. But, Jeff, we've got a ton of calls who want to uh, jump in here and uh, strap on the old helmet and talk with you, okay? So let's okay. do it. Let's do it. We'll start with uh, Robert in Philadelphia. Robert from PA. Welcome, my friend. Uh, good evening, gentlemen. I'd like to touch on a few points, and I'll make them as brief as I can, uh, famous last words. Uh, it, I'm so glad you talked about balloons because I wonder how, uh, in, in regard to matters of aviation, the Montgolfier brothers, I'm guessing that they're almost kind of forgotten about. I mean, not that I'm a student of aviation, but I gather that to many, ballooning wasn't something that I guess people really, their ears were perked up by the likes of Malcolm Forbes and Steve Fawcett and um, – Richard Branson, and I thought that matter last week where the power conked out on, I guess, the national grid, I thought that was akin to the ILS, the instrument landing system, which I think is how JFK Jr. unfortunately met his demise, because even though he wasn't fully trained in that method, that that's what he was kind of relying upon when he met his end. And I guess even though as far-fetched an idea as it is, is a premise like what happened in Die Hard 2 out of the realm of possibility. I mean, I seem to recall that in the wake of that, that in Congress, that I don't know who, I don't know Democrat or Republican, that's that's not the point, actually brought that in as a way of uh, trying to say we should step up security in airports. Of course, this was a time long before 911. Well, what, what referring to in that movie, are you talking about just the takeover of an airplane or? Uh, well, well, well I, I thought it's the technology because they, uh, if you recall, the guys they kind of um, um, they doctor it so that a guy thinks that he's come uh, the, uh, the pilot of the British uh, plane, who I think is played by Colm Meany of Deep Space Nine, but that's another story. Uh, in, or in, I mean, thinking he's he's landing properly without realizing that uh, the guy has basically made it so that he literally. Um, flies into the ground as opposed to landing. Above. Oh, I see what you mean. To playing with the instruments, uh, rigging the instruments. Well, let, you've brought up a whole bunch of great topics here, Robert, as you always do. So, let's take them one by one, Jeff. Uh, ballooning. Let's start with that. Any comments? Well, yeah. Where to begin? I guess with ballooning. Um, oh, we had earlier mentioned uh, our aviation museum and some of the things we're doing. We just happened to have a program coming up on Thursday. January 26th at 7 p.m. at our museum at the Manchester Airport about ballooning in the 19th century in New Hampshire and New England. Um, and Thaddeus Lowe, the guy I mentioned before, he gets kind of a lot of attention. But for every Thaddeus Lowe, there are dozens and dozens of other very colorful characters who took to ballooning before the Wright brothers taught us how to fly using engines and control. 
uh, in that way. And so we have our assistant director, Leah Dearborn, has done a lot of research. And we even sent out notes to all the local town historical societies to see if they had any kind of accounts of ballooning in their records in the town histories to try and pull it all together and connect the dots. And it's actually a remarkably colorful and vibrant, vibrant part of 19th century life in New England that's really completely forgotten because we've moved on. But if you turn back the clock and look uh, at what we still have, this great story. We now know who the first person to fly over Manchester, New Hampshire was. The guy in 1856, the first known balloon ascent here in the Queen City. Um, and lots of other fun stuff will be kind of part of that presentation. And uh, that's coming up on Thursday, January 26th. And we can give you how to get more information about yeah. that, I guess, later on in the broadcast. And, and Robert uh, brought up, uh, g- granted, it's a movie plot device, but uh, it, it, people hacking into the landing control system and the communications controls and so forth. Um, I mean, n- nothing is beyond the realm of possibility, but are, are those systems of communication relatively secure as far as you know? Well, um, as you say, anything is possible. Um, I mean, maybe we're in the matrix for all we know, right? So <laughs> who's to say? But, um, yes, anything that is... Um, and anything that uses IT technology can be uh, hacked in some way, and there's no exception for aircraft, unfortunately, although um, it would be really, uh, I think, uh, very unusual for anything to actually happen, given all the safety protocols that are in place. But even the manufacturer themselves, this brings up what happened with the Boeing uh, 737 MAX family of, of airplanes. Um, the software that was written to control the plane was um, was not uh, everything it should have been, and it had some issues depending on how it was configured and how an airline used it um, that led to two, those two horrible crashes um, in recent years that caused the whole fleet to be grounded until such time as Boeing could re-engineer what's called the uh, MCAS system. Where, and if uh, I could make one more comment, uh, gentlemen, uh, based on what yeah. you know, sir, do you have any uh, – what's your opinion on what uh, befell – I'm guessing that uh, everyone died – the uh, Malaysian uh, Flight uh, 370, I believe, t- in 2014, where I think within hours of takeoff, it went inv- – it went uh, – I guess radar went Prince dark. And, yeah, uh, it was. And, um, that's one of the great mysteries of aviation. Probably will always be. Um, the the last I recall, there was some wreckage that was positively connected to that aircraft that washed ashore on the east coast of Africa and Madagascar and some of the French islands that are out in the Indian Ocean there, and that corresponds to what one of the possible paths of that plane would have taken if everyone had then become unresponsive, either to lack of oxygen or whatever, and the plane just flew until it ran out of fuel and then descended into the Indian Ocean. And that part of the world, um, it's it's a big ocean, and they've been trying for years to, to figure out through all the high-technology devices you have now to search the, the floor of the ocean. But it's like trying to search the entire United States for one plane's wreckage that may not be in one big piece anyway. So, speaking of wreckage, I thought I heard somewhere that some years ago they believe, I think within the last 20 years, they actually, somewhere I heard, and I'll wrap this up, some wreckage of Amelia Earhart's ill fated flight, or did I mishear that? 
Uh, um, that's one of those other ones that keeps going. It's it's like the story of the Titanic. Amelia always mm-hmm. makes news because of what happened to her. Okay. Uh, but there's no there's been no conclusive uh, proof that we know what happened, where her aircraft wound up, and what happened to her. Unfortunately, and, um, and that's a New England story name? because yeah. she was a big player here in New England aviation. Um, she had a lot to do with Logan Airport and with um, uh, the startup of Northeast Airlines back in the day. Hmm. So. Kind of a local story angle there. Good questions, Robert, as always. Good conversation. Thank you, my dear friend. Let's go to Eric in Methuen on Nightside with Jordan in for Dan, and you're on with Jeff Rapsis from the Aviation Museum of New Hampshire. Go ahead, Eric. Yes, good evening. How you doing, Jeff? Um, right. Yeah, I was wondering. I I, I first uh, got my uh, pilot certificate from a guy named Charlie C. You probably can finish the last name. Um, yeah, Charlie he Cashin. He used to have Charlie his Charlie Cashin right outside your museum. Yep, he yes, was my he was well. he he signed me off. Yeah, great Absolutely. guy. Yeah, you're. Yeah, he had many many uh, students, and uh, his uh, his wife um, Valerie is still a member of our museum. Though Charlie's been gone for I think almost twenty years now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how. I, that's where uh, Claire Bentley is my flight instructor back then. You might know her. She uh-huh. was a safety officer in the, in the area. We learned out of Tumac Airport and Lawrence Airport at Phoenix, Phoenix East Aviation before it was Eagle mm-hmm. East. But um, I ended up going on to the Navy as an air crewman, and I uh, got 4,000 hours flying around the world in C-130. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and okay. uh, many, many tours in the Mideast. Thank you. Many tours in the Mideast, living in the Mideast and all that. But I used to also, uh, when I was a teenager, work air shows with a guy named Ken French. Up there at Manchester for the, with the New England Escadrille, you probably remember that crew up there um, putting well, on air shows. I grew up in Nashua. I I didn't see those when I was younger because I wasn't here in Manchester, and that does go back quite a few years because of the the, the commercial service at, in Manchester and the way that it's become developed. It's difficult to do any show like that here anymore. Right, you really can't close the airport down anymore. Right. Yeah. Well, I used to, I mean, we used to have Pease and Weymouth. I mean, my first squadron was in Weymouth, which is long gone. NAS oh, Weymouth, yes. which is long yeah. gone. And Brunswick, which is now gone. And uh, Willow Grove and Pennsylvania. I mean, we've lost about 20 military airfields around New England between Loring and Devons and all those, you know, yeah. which. Well, the, 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 Weymouth, the Weymouth field is really interesting because you can see it still. When you're coming yeah. into Logan and certain approaches, you look down and like that looks like an airport, but it's being slowly yeah. developed into like shopping centers and golf courses. Yeah. But e- Eric, I have a question. Eric, uh, this is Jordan. Yeah. Uh, uh, you had quite a military career, and thank you again for your service. Twenty-five Jeff years. Thanks. Did you ever uh, go into anything in the in the commercial area after getting out of the military, or or not? I have not. No. Um, I, I just retired actually this this year, so that's on my plate. I'm looking at that. Um, haven't done that and thinking about it. Uh, I have a business on the outside, which you know I'm operating um, in Reading. But um, yeah, I, I miss. I, I love being around airplanes every day. I always have since I was a kid. I first, me and my best friend, he went. He became an A10 instructor. I went big plane C130s. You know, I like being able to go across the Atlantic and actually using the lavatory as I went across the Atlantic where he had a plane. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, we always joke Come about on. that, like, 
You know, I could read the newspaper, drink a coffee, and use the lavatory or the head, and, and he was strapped into a pie, into the, you know, it's cool. He could do loops and barrel rolls, but, yeah, how much fun is that across the Atlantic? That's you know, true. Really uh, about it. Lindbergh, they haven't come up with a way for you guys to, well, <laughs> there isn't much room <laughs> up there. <laughs> no, but, well, me... you know, I mean, the air show, the air show circuit in New England has become very, I mean, I used to go to Weymouth with my mother and, my dad and uh, to to Hanscom, and I remember seeing Stealth Fighters there and everything else, and uh, well, you know Peas and all these other places. There used to be an air show every month, and now it's become nothing. Well, a couple of quick points. First, if you are re- have retired uh, from the service and you're in Methuen, I will encourage you to come volunteer here at the Aviation Museum of New Hampshire. We have a lot of uh, ex a lot of ex Navy pilots, but anyone from any branch is welcome and. Uh, many of our volunteers are people who've served and want to just sort of answer questions about that to young people who come in. Um, and we do have a volunteer open house tomorrow night, actually. Really? Well, I've actually thought about that because I've stopped in there. I was uh, my last uh, my last year in service as I my sunset kind of out of out of the service was at the NOSC up there, uh, which overlooks your museum. You can you can see yeah. it up there. Yeah, I was at the NOSC there for a year. And uh, well, just kind of serving all my time. If you want to join us, it's um, 27 Navigator Road in Londonderry. Just look online. Oh, yeah. I've been there. I've been there. I've, fl- I've, flown, right. well, I've flown to it to pick up uh, Charlie <laughs> Cashin, and then I've driven to it from uh, from the the, uh, the naval, you know, the uh, naval operational sports uh, center, uh, which well, is right up the road from you. Yeah, see you in person if you can come up, and that's yeah, open to anybody. Yeah, you, you would, you would definitely fit right in, Eric. There's no question about that. You're definitely a flyer, no question. Uh, um, I started off as an airframe mechanic, so if you need any help fixing anything, I <laughs> went to sheet metal school, paint and finish school, corrosion school, and a lot of other schools working on airplanes. This, I know we're probably getting close to a break, but Jordan, yeah. I should mention that one of our projects that we do, um, we're big on youth education um, programs to get kids interested in the field, in aviation and aerospace. We have a program where we have a high school student uh, team building an airplane. Uh, it's a kit-based oh, wow. airplane. It's a real airplane. It's an RV. It's a Vans aircraft RV-12IS, fuel-injected engine. And they completed their first plane this past August, and it's uh, passed everything, and we were flying it around. And we're going to be selling it. Uh, there's a good market for those, and we use the money, which is over a hundred thousand dollars, to buy the next set of kits. So the next group of kids can build. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah. What time is that meeting tomorrow night? Seven p.m. Eastern. What is it? Are we on daylight time or standard time? <laughs> Seven p.m. Seven p.m. tomorrow at the uh, museum in Manchester. Okay. Yeah, we've got to meet some folks and uh, talk a little bit about Eric. You'd be right at home. Thank you. We've got to take this break. Thank you so much. Before we do break, um, very quickly, first of all, can you stay with me in the next hour if if that's okay, Jeff? I'd be glad to. We'd love to have you. And please just give the website of the museum so people can check it out. It's um, it's very easy. It's Aviation Museum of NH dot org. See how easy that is. It rolls right off the tongue. All right, stand by. We will come back with Jeff Rapsis and continue our journey into aviation and flight right after these words. You're on Nightside with Dan Ray on WBZ, Boston's News Radio. Let's go right to the calls for Jeff Rapsis from the Aviation Museum of New Hampshire. And here's Ed, who's checking in. Ed, welcome to the flight deck. You're on the air. Hey, thank you. How are you guys doing tonight? Just great. How are you? Good, good. 
I can't hold it back to some of these stories, but uh, the one thing that you haven't touched on yet is the, the Apollo uh, line of, of aircraft. And they had one of them up at the uh, Pensacola Museum where, you know, they, they set up uh, mannequins and stuff with the helmets and all that. But just to uh, imagine how people could fly out of the sky, you know, toppling in and out of the, until you hit the water, you know, it was fascinating to me. Oh, yeah. Um, and, well, they had a lot of the aircraft, too, through the years uh, hanging from the ceilings. But if anyone ever gets a chance to, to check out one of these museums, they should jump right on it. I mean, you learn things you never thought you'd see. And uh, it's, it's just amazing uh, to see the history of aircraft. In, in, indeed. Ed, thank you so much. We're running a little tight on time. But uh, you mentioned aerospace, Jeff, when you talk with me about aviation. It, it's all connected, isn't it? It is, um, and about what Ed was talking about, um, this year, 2023, is the 100th anniversary of Alan Shepard's birthday, and he was the New Hampshire guy who was the first American in space. He learned to fly right here in Manchester at this airport, mm-hmm. and he went on to command Apollo 14. The uh, capsule that he used in that first flight in 1961 is in the possession of the Smithsonian Institution, and it travels, and we're hoping to get it to visit New Hampshire so you can see the little capsule that Alan Shepard was in that launched him on the first American uh, flight into space back in 1961. That'll be sometime later this year. So I'm hope, hoping Ed can make it and see it. Uh, there are a lot of New England connections. I was thinking of Robert Goddard, the rocket scientist. Where right. was he from? Worcester, I think? Or? Worcester, yes. He yeah. was from the Central Mass area. Yeah, so I mean, the, the connections to certainly New Hampshire, as we're hearing, uh, are great. So you're going to stay with us, uh, and I appreciate that because there's so much more cool stuff we can talk about. And one of the things I'd love to talk to you about is is aviation innovation and what's ahead. I mean, we know about stealth technology. We know about uh, planes that can take off, like helicopters. But there are some really cool things out there, and uh, I know you. Uh, and I want to hear your story, how you got into flying in the first place, Jeff. If that's okay. Sure, whatever we can uh, get into is fine. All right, so stand by. He's Jeff Rapsis, and it's Aviation Museum of NH.org. NH, of course, for New Hampshire. It's a great take-in up there in Manchester. And um, Jeff and I have done a whole lot of things over the years to promote on New England weekends, on weekend segments and so forth. And uh, appropriately enough, I mean, there's so many great things going on, and he's a terrific ambassador for it. So we'll come back and take your phone calls. 617-254-1030. 617-254-1030. I'm Jordan Rich filling in for Dan Ray. This, of course, is Nightside. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.